Hi everyone. This week's episode I'm very excited about. We are doing an interview with Professor Andrew Lowe at MIT Sloan School of Business. Now you might be wondering what is a business school professor doing on a data science podcast and I'm extremely excited to have him here because I think some of the items that he researches and studies are actually super important to data scientists who are trying to have real impact in the organizations that they work in. So thank you so much Professor Lowe for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we'll be talking about a paper that you just wrote and published in the Harvard Data Science Review about modeling drug trial outcomes. And I think without any further ado, let's get into it. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So to start out, uh, as I mentioned, you're a business school professor. And but as I was going back through some of your the publications that you've done in the past, some of your research interests, it looks like you've had an evolution from things that look like more classical business topics like finance, those sorts of things, into uh, topics that focus more on or that, that have some overlap with data science. Is that about right? That's right. Yeah, I started out very early on studying large amounts of data back when data science wasn't a real phrase. Uh, we called it empirical finance. Uh-huh. And uh, in particular, looking at uh, millions of transactions of stock prices and trying to make sense of all of that data uh, in some kind of a systematic way. Uh, and then more recently, focusing on applying machine learning techniques to studying consumer credit, mortgages, credit cards, and so on. And uh, it was really because of personal reasons that I got interested in healthcare, a number of friends and family dealing with cancer, that got me to start working in this area. We covered the actual paper that you wrote in last the last episode of Linear Digressions. And so for folks who haven't heard that one yet, I would strongly advise you to go back and give it a listen, because there's a lot of layers to this paper that, that we spend a little bit of time unpacking. Um, but I'd like you to start with, if you could give a maybe 60 to 90 second recap of the paper as, as you thought about it as the paper's author. Like what, is the pa- what were you trying to explore and what did you find? Well, first of all, this paper was co-authored with two of my graduate students, King Wei Xia and Chihim Wang. And the three of us set out trying to understand whether or not it's possible to predict clinical trial outcomes using various features of the drug as well as the particular clinical trial design. And, you know, really the emphasis that we're taking is not so much on the underlying scientific uh, outcomes, but rather the uh, clinical and, in our perspective, the financial outcomes. We really come at it from the point of view of an investor that's thinking about putting money in a particular biotech company or pharma company, and we want to know as an investor, what's the likelihood that we're going to hit pay dirt? And in this world, that means making sure that your clinical trials have a good outcome. And I think that's a really interesting thing to just uh, double-click on for folks who aren't as familiar with sort of the clinical trial world. That, as you say, there's a there's a scientific aspect to it. Like, does this medicine actually work? But that that's not exactly the same thing as will this eventually turn into a successful product. So I was wondering if you could go another layer deeper with us right now and, and disentangle those a little bit more as someone who's actually an expert in this. Sure, I'll be happy to give it a try. The way that I started thinking about this was really from an experience that I had talking to a a very well-known biotech company. I was introduced to that biotech company because my mother at the time was struggling with non-small cell lung cancer. And this company had a number of therapeutics, one of which might have helped her. And so I was privileged to meet with the chief scientific officer and asked him what I thought was a relatively straightforward question, and that is, does your source of financing have any kind of influence on your scientific agenda? 
And I was very concerned about that agenda because the priority of the particular compound that could have helped my mother was not very high on their list. And the CFO uh, and the CSO, the two of them together, looked at each other and then turned to me, and the chief scientific officer said, influence, our financing drives our scientific agenda. And, you know, as an economist, I get it. You have to pay for stuff. But as a son of a dying patient, I was just absolutely outraged and offended by that because what does stock market volatility, interest rates, and Fed policy have to do with whether you should treat cancer via angiogenesis inhibitors or immunotherapy? Nothing. And yet those kind of considerations drive this biotech company's scientific agenda. And I thought, you know, despite the fact that I'm not a biotech expert, they've got it backwards. The science should be driving the financing, not the other way around. And so I started looking into this, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the big issue in all of these circumstances is risk. Are investors going to get their money back after putting in, in some cases, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars over the course of 10 or 15 years on these clinical trials? And so while machine learning has been used to great effect in designing molecules, doing high-throughput screening and other kinds of bioinformatics, at the time, we didn't see anything going on on predicting clinical trial outcomes for the purpose of investing. And that's the kernel of the paper that's sort of our topic of discussion today. So to recap a, a few things that are maybe good framing for the next part of the conversation, you worked with, I think, a commercial, a, one or two commercial vendors to take advantage of some data sets that they had gathered around clinical trial um, attributes and, and outcomes. Um, which was formed the the backbone of the analysis that you did. And then as you kind of alluded to, the outcome that you were trying to understand was whether a drug will eventually reach approval from the FDA at, at starting at two different but critical points in the pipeline. So the phase two and the phase three in the, in the uh, clinical trials process. That's right. What we're trying to understand is what the likelihood of approval is. And we look at approval from the vantage point of a phase two drug as well as from a phase three drug just to give different investors in those different life cycles a chance to get a sense of what the risks are. And at the outset, what did you think would be the hardest things about building that model in practice? Well, as an experienced data scientist, you probably know the answer already. It really has to do with the data. The data. Yeah. It's always the data. Yeah. And I, I was, we were taken aback because, you know, we got the data from a commercial vendor, Informa. Uh, they're a well-known name in the field of biomedicine. They have a number of products called Sightline, Biomed Tracker, Pharma Projects. These are things that people in the biopharma industry use all day long. And so our presumption was, if they were willing to give us an academic license, we would just be able to take the data and run our machine learning algorithms on it. We found out pretty quickly that there was a huge amount of effort involved in merging two disparate data sets. One, about the particular drugs that are involved in clinical trials and the diseases that they involve, the drug indication pairs, we call it. But then second, another database that has all the features of the clinical trial design. For example, how many patients were in a clinical trial? How long did it take to accrue those patients? So we ultimately ended up having to spend a fair bit of time understanding what the underlying definitions were of the data that was collected, and then merging the two, making sure that there were no mismatches and uh, mislabels and so on. And that probably took around six to nine months of effort oh, wow. just to merge them. And then once we did it, the actual machine learning exercise was rather quick. 
Uh, yeah, that's uh, anecdotally that's been my experience too. You spend all the time cleaning your data, right. and then at the end you you run it through Scikit-Learn and uh, declare success, I suppose. Yep. Um, one thing I did want to ask about before we leave the data a little bit too much is um, for folks who are working in industry, um, they're usually working with data sets either that they buy or license from kind of data vendors that sounds kind of similar to the use case that you have here, or they'll be doing data science on internally collected data sets, like doing analysis of data collected for A-B testing or mm -hmm. looking at, say, customer retention or acquisition type data sets. So I'm, I'm wondering for you, when you were interested in doing kind of this academic approach using a commercial data set, is that something that there is a, a well-trod path between someone like you and someone that has a data set that you're interested in? Or did you find it challenging at all to explain or get buy-in from sort of your partners uh, in order to get that license for the data and to build the model that you were interested in? Oh, it was definitely the latter, because what we were trying to do is something that apparently had never been done before. Really? Well, yeah, especially from the financial perspective. Most financial investors haven't really thought about the problem of forecasting clinical trial outcomes using these large data sets. And mainly it's because the scientific expertise is generally what they look for when trying to understand the prospects of a clinical trial. So they'll get key opinion leaders that are experts in Alzheimer's or one kind of cancer or another and look at the design of the trial, look at the molecules that are involved in a clinical trial, and basically make a judgment as to whether or not this is a good or bad investment. The problem is that that's information confined to a very specific instance, and it doesn't necessarily generalize across a large number of trials and across a large number of different drug indication pairs. The reason that we were so excited about getting access to this data was because we wanted to, to make the best of all of the various different cases out there and figure out whether we, there's information that could be gotten. And from our analysis, we actually found some really interesting patterns uh, that, in retrospect, were pretty straightforward, but nobody in advance told us that we ought to be looking down those alleys. So we will get to those outcomes in a moment. I like to uh, leave that as a a little bit of a, a cliffhanger, so people stay till the end of the episode. But I want to dig into, you mentioned briefly how important and hard some of those data quality issues were when you first found it. One of the things we spent a little bit of time in the previous episode talking about was the missingness and the patterns of missingness in the data and the way that depending on what your hypothesis is about why data is missing, that can have a big impact on the way that you analyzing and you know impute the data or fill in the gaps or ignore it or drop records. There's lots of different things that you can do and they have different implications. You can find different answers depending on which one you pick. So I would love if you can dig into a little bit more what were some of the, the patterns or lack thereof in the missingness in the data and how did that inform the analysis strategy that you took in trying to fill it in? Yeah, that's a really important area that we spent a lot of time on. And in fact, I would argue that the innovation in our publication is much more on the side of dealing with missing data than it is on machine learning. And in fact, the machine learning techniques that we use are pretty well known, and there's not a whole lot of innovation in that dimension. The problem with missing data in pharma examples is that for various different clinical trials, the data are so messy that even though the features that you would like to use are clearly there, they're not always measured in every instance. So a good example is the root administration of a drug. Clearly, it's important to know whether or not you're going to be getting the drug into the patient via injection, IV drip, a pill, 
an aerosol. That kind of information is present in most cases, but there are a number of drug indication pairs for which the route of administration is simply missing. And it's important to be able to take that measure and use it rather than to eliminate all the data points for which route of administration is not measured. Because if we, we did that, if we simply eliminated all of those missing data cases, we would end up having an incredibly sparse amount of data left. And I think, if I recall correctly, that was that was one thing that it looked like you explored from more from a due diligence perspective than as your your primary strategy. But just looking at how how much does it degrade the models if we were to just get rid of everything where we don't have complete records. And I guess one thing that I'll just add as an aside, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the reason that this is so important is because many of the sort of off-the-shelf methods that you were using, they'll crash if you, if you send in records that have missing data. So unless you want to build your own custom algorithm that has who knows what properties that make it so that it, for some reason, doesn't crash when it tries to split the decision tree, say, on a record that you don't have, that you have a missing data for. If you want to use those off-the-shelf methods, then you do need to think about how are we going to make this look like a you know, fully complete data set, I suppose. Exactly. Very often you'll find that the more features you would like to use, the more likely it is that you're going to run at this missing data problem. And so you've got a trade-off. Use a smaller number of features, and then you'll have a larger data set. Or use a larger number of features, and then figure out how to deal with missing data. We chose the latter strategy because... Of the 200 features that we had access to, if you simply used a, a complete records approach, in other words, deleting all the observations where you had any missing features, we would have probably deleted about 80% of our data. And for folks who are not as familiar with the protocols, let's say, around clinical trials, why is all of this data missing? Is there just no incentive to collect it in a unified way or what? Well, you know, it wasn't until recently that the federal government instituted a policy that said any kind of clinical trial has to be registered at clinicaltrials.gov. And certainly before that, it was kind of a wild, wild west. But even after the case, there are a variety of additional features that are not required to be reported in clinicaltrials.gov, but nonetheless would be really useful for prediction. And so uh, what Informa does is to collect all of that data as best it can using a variety of different means, public sources, in some cases private sources, and they aggregate it and they try to clean it to the best of their abilities. But what it means is that a clinical trial that's done, say, in Boston, Massachusetts, at one of our area hospitals, will have fantastic data. But a clinical trial that's done somewhere in a third world country may not be as sophisticated. The individuals involved in the clinical trial may not have the experience to be able to collect all of that data. And so you're putting all of this information in the same platform. That's why you've got very heterogeneous amounts of data in, across these various different venues. And so when, it, when the time came to actually do the imputation, there are a number of different methodological approaches that one can take to, to doing this imputation, just like do we do imputation in the first place is a question. How do we do it is one that has um, a garden of forking paths. There's many different ways that you can go, and they can change the outcomes. So I was wondering if you could talk through the way that you architected the work so that you could do a, a search that was the right amount of thorough, but that also didn't overwhelm you with many different options. And in particular, um, you know, I think one of the dangers in trying a bunch of different bunch of different models, a bunch of different imputation techniques, is that you can end up with a, in a place where you're cherry picking results or you aren't fully confident that 
the thing that looks the best is actually the best. So from a, from a scientific perspective and kind of from an organizational perspective, how did you think about the imputation and what did you end up deciding to, to use for your final model? So the starting point is to understand exactly what methods are out there for doing imputation. And by the way, imputation is a word that statisticians tend to use more than data scientists. Interpolation, extrapolation, uh, curve fitting are other terms that have been used before. And each of these terms actually represents a different statistical technique. Oh, in fact, in some cases, they're not even statistical. Curve fitting, for example, is a tried and true method of filling in missing data. And so what we decided was to focus on a somewhat more statistical approach. I guess my background is in statistics, so I tend to favor those methods where I understand from a probabilistic perspective what the methods are likely to do to my inferences. So we actually followed the literature of statistical imputation that's pioneered by Don Rubin and many of his collaborators and students. The basic idea is to treat missing data as parameters to be estimated. And there are a variety of different methods for doing estimation, and we outline those in our supplemental materials. And we tried several of those methods, and we actually did a very simple analysis where we started with the subset of non-missing data. So in other words, we actually went through the, the process of eliminating all data with any missing records, and that basically reduced the data set to a very, very small subset. We then took this data set and randomly decided to create missingness by throwing out different features for different observations in a particular systematic way. And then we applied the imputation algorithms to the so-called gold standard data, where we know what the missing observations are. And then we compared the machine learning forecasts with the missing observations and imputation versus with the complete data set. What we found was that our methods actually worked pretty well pretty well in the sense that the inferences that we got from the imputation data set was pretty close to the gold standard data set. Now, the one caveat about this approach is that our way of introducing missingness is using randomness. And in the cases where the missingness is due to non-random effects, that's going to create bias that we can't capture or deal with. So that is a limitation of our result and something that we highlight in our supplemental materials and our main text, and something that I think all data scientists need to, need to grapple with in some manner. For sure, for sure. So you, you, kind of, you bite the bullet on the imputation, and then once you have this completed data set, um, part of it organic, part of it sort of synthetically completed, can put it into um, some fairly standard tools coming out of scikit-learn and, and R were the ones that you mentioned in the paper. Um, and so when you use that machine learning approach, it will give you a bunch of predictions mm -hmm. and it, you validated it, both you know cross-validated it in the sense of looking at um, cases for which you already knew the answer, the standard cross-validation, and then also applied the model to some other drugs that are still in the pipeline. So mm -hmm. we'll know in you know five to 10 years if you were right, hopefully less in some cases, but it takes a while. Now, one thing that you and I talked about a little bit before we sat down for this interview um, that I mentioned appreciating was the way that I, I felt like you were very careful in the way that you wrote the paper to always stay on the predictive side in the language that you used versus the inferential side. So you mentioned a little bit, what I mean by that is you mentioned a little bit earlier that you kind of learned some interesting things, you found some interesting patterns in the data, um, but you were very careful not to draw conclusions like this feature is important and it's causing 
certain types of outcomes because machine learning methods in general, you have to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to give you a chance to, to speak to that a little bit more, um, what you think of as some of the, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of machine learning approaches versus more statistical approaches. And the second question that I think is actually really interesting is because you have external partners who are presumably at the very least curious about what you are finding in this study, how you, if you struggled at all to explain that dichotomy of prediction versus inference to them, and this is something we all struggle with. So if you have any tips for folks like me or the people who are listening about how you try to make sure that they are thinking about your results in a way that is scientifically sound. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I have any tips, but I certainly can share your pain and then talk a little bit about the way that we've been dealing with it and thinking about it. So first of all, you're absolutely right that distinction between prediction and explanation is absolutely critical, particularly when you're dealing with biomedical applications because lives are at stake. And so you don't want to be making inferences when really all you're doing is identifying correlations. So the way that we've been dealing with it is to try to determine, first of all, whether or not the predictions are robust by swapping out features, by looking at how sensitive the features are, by trying to identify the key features that lead to a particular prediction. And that will give us some confidence that what we're doing is simply not identifying patterns ex post, but rather identifying genuine causal relationships in the data. It won't prove the causal relationships. The only way to do that is either by doing some much more sophisticated causal inference or by understanding the underlying scientific justification for these factors. But I'll give you one example and then maybe try to generalize from that example. One of the key features that we discovered for predicting clinical trial success is the speed of accrual of a clinical trial. And that's the rate at which patients enroll in it, correct? That's right. In some cases, a clinical trial will enroll very quickly. In other cases, it may take two or three years before they finish enrolling the target number of patients. It turns out that that speed actually has significant predictive power. And we were a little bit surprised by that. So we then talked to some clinicians who were expert at conducting clinical trials. And they said, oh yeah, we see this all the time. And when we asked why, they said, well, it's actually pretty simple. If you've got an investigational drug and you're not sure if it works, but in fact it does, and it works miraculously well in the first few patients, the doctors of those patients find out about it, of course, and what do they do? They tell all of their doctor friends. And all of their doctor friends now get their patients to immediately get into that trial. So by word of mouth, the rate at which these trials end up accruing is exponentially fast for those drugs that are really, really effective. So that's a pretty obvious explanation after the fact, but we didn't know that ahead of time. And so now that we do know that, we have more confidence that that variable, that particular feature, is actually genuinely predicting something useful and it's not just spurious. And, and actually, since we wrote the paper using data from 2015, we actually now have four years of true out-of-sample results of our predictions. And when you plot the histogram of the particular drugs that we predicted that would have high likelihood of approval versus those that have low, you can actually see in the data that the ones that ultimately did get approved are typically associated more with the higher scores than with the lower ones. So in that out-of-sample period, at least it seems like there is some predictive power. And that prompts a question that I'm, I'm really curious about as well. So to what extent is this model something that you 
are still thinking about validating and testing and it's still uh, in the lab, so to speak, versus are the people that you've partnered with. There are lots of biotech companies um, in all the buildings that I walked past on, on my way here to your to your office on the MIT campus. A lot of people would be interested in having a crystal ball to understand what drug trials are most likely to, to lead to approvals in the long run. So how is the model being used now? How do you anticipate it being used? And, um, you know, if it's still in the lab, under what conditions would you be comfortable letting it be used to actually make predictions that would drive investments on the parts of companies? Well, that's a really interesting question that we struggle with ourselves because when we first wrote the paper, our goal was to get the information out there to demonstrate that you could actually make a difference, reduce the risk, increase the opportunities that investors might have for putting more money to work in this area. And so when we wrote the paper, we actually took all of our code and put it on GitHub with an open source license. Anybody can download it, use it, modify it in any way they like. And uh, we still believe that that's really the best approach because more and more people using the data can only be better for patients. However, something really weird happened. We got approached by a few biotech and pharma companies that asked us if we could apply our methods to their data. And we said, well, you know, we'd be happy to, but, uh, you know, you have our code. You can do it yourself. And their view is that, well, we don't want to do it ourselves. We'd like to have you do it because you've done it already, and we'd like to have you compare this with your existing results. And the only challenge that we had in accepting was they wouldn't allow us to publish any of the results because, of course, the standards of publication are you have to be able to access the data. Other academics have to be able to replicate your results. And because they wanted to keep it confidential, we ended up creating a commercial entity that my postdoc, Shomesh Chowdhury, decided to take on. And we're now actually in the process of doing these kinds of forecasts for a few biotech and pharma companies on a commercial basis. At the same time, we're also partnering with a large pharma company on an academic basis because what they want to do is to see whether or not they can get their internal data scientists to make use of these methods and possibly improve on them. So in a few weeks, we're going to announce a data challenge at this pharma company where they've actually got the informant data, they've got our code, but they're also going to be challenging their internal data scientists to use that as the starting point and include their own proprietary data to try to see whether they can beat our forecasts. And we're hoping that they'll succeed. Fascinating. Good luck. Thank Hope you. It goes well. Um, keep us informed. Maybe there's a follow-up in HDSR or some other article to come. Be great. Um, thank you so much, Professor Andrew Lowe, once again, um, MIT Sloan School of Management. Um, and for those of you who are interested and now are particularly keen to read Professor Lowe's paper that will be on LinearDigressions.com or you can find it through the Harvard Data Science Review. So thank you again. All right. Thanks, Katie. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.